I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Psalm chapter 20, 127, 127. Um, in honor and uh, respect for the word of God, we're going to stand and read from Psalm 127. Join with me as I read. <clears throat> Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he who gives his beloved sleep, for so he gives his beloved sleep, excuse me. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak for their enemies in the gate, or speak with their enemies in the gate. Excuse me, let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your word, for its instruction, for its guidance. God, help us as we uh, study and meditate upon it, to help it to impact our lives, to, to change our lives, to be more like you, and to be um, changed for the purpose of reaching this world for Christ. We thank you for this opportunity to partner with Nikki and Jordan, and God bless them as, as they endeavor to, uh, to uh, serve you in the Philippines. And thank you for your word again. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today we are concluding our, uh, our summer worship series that we've been calling Summer in the Psalms. And uh, this is our 12th and final message in the Psalms. And I, I trust that this series has been beneficial for you, been an encouragement, as well as a, a challenge to your, to, to your own personal life. And uh, I know it has been for me. It's been uplifting. It's been encouraging. As the Psalms are so real, they speak to every facet of our lives, whether we're up or down, regardless of the season we may be in at that moment, the Psalms have something to say to us. And, and so as we head into this fall season, believe it or not, next Sunday, can you believe it? Labor Day weekend, kids are already back in school. So in fact, let me just throw out a reminder, next Sunday there's only one service, one worship service here at 1045, there's no discovery hour. And uh, so just put a little reminder into your mind about that. And, uh, but as we enter into the fall season, what I want to do this morning is end with a very relevant, a very practical psalm that speaks to every one of us here this morning. How many of you know what a basset hound looks like? Raise your hand. You know what a basset hound looks like? Well, for those of you, most of you do. For those of you who don't, there's one coming up on the screen. And uh, we actually had, my family, when I was growing up, we had two basset hounds. One right after another, and their names were Charlie and Dugan. And my mom loved these dogs. I said that sarcastically. Us four, four boys, my dad and me, my th two brothers, we loved these dogs. My mom tolerated them. But Charlie and Dugan were our two basset hounds. And, uh, and so when the Tacoma News Tribune carried the story of Tattoo the Basset Hound, it caught my attention. I just had to read it. Tattoo didn't intend to go for an evening run, 
But when his owner shut the dog's leash in the car door and took off for a drive with tattoos, still outside the vehicle, he had no choice. Motorcycle officer Terry Filbert noticed a passing vehicle with something dragging behind it. Aw. He realized it was a basset hound picking up his feet and putting them down as fast as he could. He chased the car to a stop. Tattoo, yes, was rescued, but not before the dog had reached a speed of 20 to 25 miles per hour, rolling over several times. He was fine. He was fine. Now, do you ever feel like that at times, though? Do you ever feel like Tattoo, the Basset Hound? If you're tired of picking them up and putting them down as fast as you can, then it's time for us to learn another way to live. In this particular psalm we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 127 tells us about a better way to live. And so this psalm is one of the the most practical psalms that we can come to and we can end our series in, in all the Bible. This psalm deals, you may have noticed it as Bill read it for us, it deals with two specific areas of life that demand most of our time and yet cause most of our troubles. And often, these two areas compete with each other for our attention and our time. These two areas, of course, are our work and our family. Now, before we get into the psalm, I want you to first notice who wrote this psalm, Psalm 127. If some of your Bibles, if you look at 127, right under there is an inscription or a title, and it says, A Song of Ascent of Solomon. And that's, that's an important clue to the context of what Solomon is writing in the psalm. After all, the Bible tells us that King Solomon was the wisest person who ever lived. He's also the same guy who wrote most of the book of Proverbs. Which basically tells us here, because Solomon is the author of this psalm, and he's the author of most of Proverbs, which is a, a wisdom book. Proverbs is a book about how to live life God's way, This tells us immediately that this psalm in particular, I mean, it it has something to say about these two areas of our life. Work and home, which demands most of our time, causes most of our trouble, competes for most of our time and resources. And so it is in our best interest now to pay attention. It's in our best interest to take heed to what Solomon writes, because he knows a thing or two about work and family. Now, if we had to summarize this psalm, we could do it in this fashion. If you want to follow along in your notes and take notes, you're welcome to, or just follow along on the screen. But we could summarize Solomon's message in Psalm 127 in this way. Without the Lord, frustration, but with the Lord, satisfaction. I believe that's the essence of what Solomon is trying to communicate to us here in this particular psalm. Three times in the first two verses of the psalm, Solomon uses one of his favorite words, vain, or vanities. These verses recall Solomon's message in the other book that he wrote, the book of Ecclesiastes, with this emphasis on vanity. Solomon writes in that book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
But is everything vanity or meaningless in life? Well, the answer is yes, if we leave God out of the picture. And that's what Solomon is trying to communicate to us here. Building a house is vain unless the Lord builds the house. Guarding a city is vain unless the Lord watches the city. Staying up late and getting up early to work is vanity unless the Lord blesses our work. In other words, our, our Herculean efforts are in vain without the Lord. But our efforts are not in vain if God is in what we are doing. In other words, without the Lord, we will endure frustration in life. But with the Lord, we can enjoy satisfaction in life. What a great message to end on. Because after all, isn't that what most of the world is seeking after? A little bit of satisfaction in this life? And here Solomon is giving us some clues on how to do that. And of course, the biggest clue of all is we got to include the Lord in the picture, in our lives. Because without the Lord, it's frustration, but with the Lord, there is satisfaction. So let's break this psalm down a little bit and see what he's saying in particular. Number one, without the Lord, our work is pointless. Without the Lord, our work is pointless. Work is a major component of our lives. I think all of us here, we understand that. We know that. Most of us spend 40 or more hours a week working at our jobs. So notice again what Solomon writes about work in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, this phrase, laboring in vain, basically means it's the idea that you can throw yourself into your work all you want, and in the end, you will look yourself in the mirror one morning and you'll say, what was the point of all that? You can go to college, you can get your master's degree even, a doctorate degree, you can go to a trade school, you can rise on the ladder of where you're working, what you're doing, you can be a manager, it doesn't matter, you can throw yourself into all of it. You can be a successful business owner, you can be an entrepreneur, you can do all of the above, it doesn't matter. If the Lord's not in it, you will come to the end of your life or even perhaps sooner in midlife and you will be looking in the mirror one morning going, what's the use? What's the purpose of this? It seems like it's all pointless. That's the idea here. Solomon is telling us that when we build or when we protect, they are either the Lord's doing or they are ultimately pointless. We can work like beavers to build our homes and to protect our families. And if those things are ultimately not of the Lord's doing, then one day we'll ask ourselves, what was all that for? It's pointless. And even if you achieve a measure of apparent earthly success, that success will be po a pointless accomplishment, devoid of God's blessing, and therefore devoid of any real satisfaction for your soul. Why? Because without the Lord, we're just laboring in vain. Our work is pointless. Now, obviously, we look around our world today, and it is filled with architects and builders who build magnificent structures. 
and attain magnificent, amazing levels of success and prosperity on this earth without ever once acknowledging God. We understand that. At least their work has the appearance of success. But Solomon is telling us that without God, it is still a worthless, pointless accomplishment in the end because it has no eternal significance. It's in vain. It's all vanity, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes later on in the same chapter of 1, verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity and striving after the wind. Now, if you want an example of what that looks like, an example of what working without the Lord looks like on a massive scale, then just look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. How many have heard of the Tower of Babel? Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you may be the first time you're hearing about it. Well, let me give you the synopsis about the Tower of Babel here. It is a one big disastrous example of the futility of self-reliance and the folly of self-sufficiency. The greatest work project of the ancient world is a story of disaster because the people who were building it thought they could build this tower without the Lord, apart from the Lord, all on, them, on their own for themselves. The people, in particular in Genesis chapter 11, even before that, were given a mission by God. They were given a purpose by God, and that is to make His name famous in everything they do and everywhere they go. But the people thought to themselves, why bother with God? Let's make ourselves famous. Let's, let's build something for us and to us. Let's make a name for us. And isn't that what people do today? Mostly through their careers, through their successes, through their accomplishments, their achievements, through their homes, or I should say houses. And so they decided to do this by building a tower to the sky, to the heavens. The people were populous as ants. They were busy as bees building this tower and making a name for themselves. But God frustrated their plans. God's like, you think you can do that all on your own apart from me? I'll show you. And he frustrated their plans, and some of you know how he did that. And he rendered their work project unfinished. And here's how God did that. You go to Genesis chapter 11, verse 9, and it says, Therefore, its name is called Babel. You want to know why it's called Babel? Here it is. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. You see, instead of fulfilling the purpose that God had given to them, they stayed congregated and said, we'll make a name for ourselves and a monument for ourselves instead of making a name for God and scattering to fulfill and multiply the earth. And God said, I'll teach you, I'll show you, I'll confuse your language, and I'll scatter you. And this tower was unfinished. It became pointless. It was worthless. It was in vain. And now even today, civilization is trying to recover from the effects of such a shattered community and a garbled communication. And Solomon's message here 
In 127 of Psalms, it exposes the arrogance of people who think they can accomplish anything truly lasting or meaningful on their own apart from God's help and power when he says, unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord guards. You look to the Tower of Babel as an example, and it shows us that you might have the human energy, you might have even the expertise to build a house or even a tower. But if you think you can do those things apart from God's power, apart from God's blessing, you are destined for ultimate failure and frustration. Remember, without the Lord, our work is pointless. It's all in vain. And so let me ask all of us here, including myself, do, do you work do you, do you do your work in conscious dependence on the Lord? Do you depend on the Lord to make your labor meaningful, or does your faith make no difference in how you approach your work? When you go to work in the morning, do you leave your faith at home and, and simply work without any given thought of God? Is trusting God even a key feature of the way you work? Or do you do you separate God from your work? He's not even part of your life. You come and you worship Him on Sundays, but then Monday morning, you leave Him here at church. Let me give you two encouraging truths about work here. The first one is God loves to work. Did you realize that? God loves to work. The whole premise for all work is that God Himself loves to work. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 with the announcement, in the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God created. Not sat majestic in the heavens, not was filled with beauty and love. No, the Bible begins. Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, God did something. He made something. He created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 is a journal of God's work. The week of creation was a week of work. And so we, get this, we live in a world where God loves to work. And so before anything else, work is an activity of God. And Solomon now reminds us in this psalm that unless the Lord builds the house and unless the Lord guards the city, in other words, the work of God did not stop on the seventh day of creation when God rested from all his work. God continues to work, even to this day. He continues to work his plan of redemption in the world even now. And part of what God does in work, I mean, what he does is work in, with, and through those who are working for him and in his name. This is what gives our work purpose. This is what gives our work meaning, which brings us to the second wonderful truth about work. God is the one who makes our work meaningful. Listen, God, you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. God gave Adam and Eve a job to do in the Garden of Eden before, listen to me, before they sinned. What was often called the fall or the curse, before Adam and Eve sinned and sent all of mankind basically into a downward spiral, before that happened, before they sinned in the garden, there was work. God gave them a purpose, a mission to do. 
And that job was filled with purpose and mission. Now, obviously, after they sinned, after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned, the curse of some people's lives is now some of it is work. They look at their work as a curse. And yes, we have to labor hard. We have to toil hard. We have to work to get a harvest, if you will. It's part of it. The curse of some people's lives, though, is not so much work as it is as such, but pointless, senseless, vain work. Work that takes place apart from God without regard for God. And so now when you move across the pages of God's Word, and you come into the New Testament where Paul writes in Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24, Paul writes these words to us, whatever you do now in this world, do it heartedly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. And so work, get this, and I'm telling you, this is the way we view our work sometimes. We think it is a way to just pass time and make money so that I can survive in this world. And listen, if that's how you view your work, on that limited, horizontal, earthly plane, if that's only how you view your work, i got news to you. You're going to be frustrated in your job. No, your job. It's actually service that you render to the Lord. And if you do your work as unto the Lord, Paul says, then your work has eternal significance with eternal rewards. Think of it this way. You work for the King of Kings, and that changes everything. No matter what you do, your job has purpose and meaning because you're doing it ultimately for Jesus Christ the King. This means who you work for is more important than what you do. So no matter what you do, you're doing it to glorify Jesus Christ. It takes us all the way back to Genesis, where God gave a purpose and a mission to Adam and Eve, and now God is giving us that same mission and purpose. Jesus rephrased it in the Great Commission. Make God famous. Make His name famous. Use your job as your witnessing place, your mission opportunity. And while, yes, you're making some income to support your family, that, listen, that the greater purpose is I'm working for Jesus Christ to glorify Him through this. And whoever God brings me in contact to with my coworkers, man, God, use me now. That's what gives it meaning and purpose. Here's another way to think about it. And this is the starting point of a biblical work ethic. Our work is an opportunity, get this, yes, for worship if we do our work as unto the Lord. You see, as Christ followers, we must never lose sight of this truth or else our work will eclipse our worship of God. That is, we will worship our work instead of worshiping God in and through our work. And how many people in our culture, in our society, worship their work at the expense of God, at the expense of family, at the expense of this, you name it, at the expense of, most of all, the mission of God. 
And yet, if you do your work as unto the Lord, Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, he says, you will receive back from the Lord. And let me tell you, that paycheck is worth more than any paycheck you could receive from your place of employment. That is the biblical perspective on work. Don't worship your work. Instead, let God make your work meaningful by worshiping Him in and through your work. So Solomon warns us here in verse 1 that without the Lord, our work is simply pointless. It's meaningless. It's in vain. In verse 2, though, he warns us that without the Lord, our lives are restless. Point number two in our notes here. Without the Lord, our lives are restless. Look what Solomon writes in verse 2. He says, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, only to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Now, isn't that such a beautiful picture? It really is. Let me explain why. Because what Solomon is doing in this particular verse, he's painting a contrast here for us. Somebody who gets up early, stays up late to work, and yet their sleep is fitful and filled with anxiety and fear, and there's never any sense of rest and refreshment in their sleep. You contrast that now with the one who trusts in the Lord and receives rest and refreshment in their sleep. Got the two pictures? Solomon is basically saying to us, it is vain for you to rise up early and to stay up late only to eat the bread of sorrows. And yet God, it's interesting here, God does not lay down any specific rules for how early to rise for work or how late we knock off at night from our work. But God does lay down this principle for us as his children. He says, don't rise early. Don't stay up late working out of anxiety and worry and out of fear and fretfulness. Listen, if the joy of work lures you to work 12 hours a day, then so be it. But take heed, lest you are really deceiving yourself and in fact are being driven by anxiety and worry and anxiousness and fearfulness. Oh, I won't have enough for retirement. I've got to work more. I can't provide this. And it's just you're being driven to work and to work more out of that motive or by the twin, her twin sister's self-ambition, which is a big problem too. Here's the point I believe Solomon's making for us. He's basically saying this, and in your Bible translations, it's paraphrased different ways. Don't eat the bread of anxious toil. Don't eat the bread of sorrows. Or don't eat the bread of painful labor. All of these phrases are talking about an anxious heartache, a restless heartache, unsettled heart. In other words, Solomon's talking about a troubled state of anxiety that makes sleep impossible due to a lack of trust in our God. And by the way, I'll just add this in. It doesn't really matter what your job is or what your vocation is. You can even be a pastor like me and still eat the bread of anxious toil. So it's not an issue of whether you're in the secular world or you're in what's called vocational ministry world. This is a struggle we all share in. 
including myself. This is why it's vain to get up early and to stay up late working only to eat the bread of anxious toil. It violates a basic spiritual principle God gives to those who have learned to rest in Him, not to those who strive in their own strength to make life work on their own. So here are two more encouraging truths. Let me, let me share these with you here. First truth, God gives sleep to those who trust in Him. I mean, I love that. God gives sleep to those who trust in him. Listen, one of the greatest gifts God gives to us, and I don't know if you thought of it as an actual gift, but it is, that is the gift of sleep. Rest from our labors, relief from the cares of this life, and refreshment for our body and souls. Listen, the older I get, the more I appreciate the value of sleep. You know what I'm talking about here? And for some of us, sleep is not as easy to come by as it used to be. You look around our world today, so many people today struggle to sleep and to sleep restfully, which explains why there are so many over-the-counter and prescription medications to now help us sleep. So we need to see that restful sleep, listen, is truly a blessing from God, is it not? It's a reminder how dependent we are on the Lord. Which is why almost when we, when we sit down to dinner as a family, which doesn't happen all the time in our daily schedule of life, but when we sit down as a family, I almost always pray in thanking God for the day and acknowledging Him for our food and the provision of it. Is to, I almost, you ask the boys and my wife this. Well, say, God, give us a restful night of sleep tonight. Help us to sleep well tonight. Listen, do you realize a good night's sleep has less to do about how tired you are? A good night's sleep has less to do about what kind of mattress you own and are sleeping on? Because nowadays, man, they advertise all these different kinds of mattresses. How many have the, you know, the temper sleep, you know, whatever it's called, beauty rest, you know, the kind of memory foam. And, and listen, I'm not saying those can't help you, because they certainly can't. A good mattress can do a wonderful job in helping you sleep. But what my point is here is, listen to me, a good night's sleep has less to do about how tired you are or what kind of mattress you sleep on than it does about God himself. And our trust in the Lord. A good night's sleep is more about how much we are trusting Him. Which brings us to the question, have you ever wondered why God made us in such a way that we have to sleep away a third of our lives? After all, God could have designed a human being that was always fresh, always rested, needed no sleep. So why did God decree that sleep plays such an important part of our lives? I think he wanted to give us a universal reminder of how dependent we really are on him. We are so frail, aren't we? We're so frail that we have to become helpless and unconscious every day in order to live more days. So in many ways, sleep is really a humbling experience. For we are never more childlike, we are never more weak than when we sleep. And yet God has told us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my power is made perfect in weakness. 
And if God's power is made perfect in weakness, then surely we can believe this psalm that when we hand over our anxieties to God and we lay our heads down in peace, God works with all his might through the night on our behalf. Yes, indeed, because it brings us to our second wonderful truth about sleep and work. Notice this. God works for those who trust in him while we sleep. Listen, God can accomplish more for us even as we sleep, for he never get this slumbers nor sleeps. Did you realize that? You only got to go back a few chapters in the book of Psalms here to Psalm 121, verses 2 through 4. Listen to what it says. My help comes from the Lord. We ought to pause and just ask ourselves, where does my help come from? When I need help, who do I turn to? Where do I turn? When life stinks, when you got problems out the wahoosie, life is chaos, conflicts, where do you turn for your help? Who do you turn to for help? The psalmist here, right off the bat, tells us, my help comes from the Lord. Why? Who made heaven and earth? And if my God made heaven and earth, then surely my God can intervene in what's going on in my life. And now he goes on, he says, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Do you realize God was up all night working? Perhaps he was up all night working on your behalf. This is amazing. The one who keeps you never sleeps. God stays up all night, every night, on our behalf. Think about it. God can perform more good for those who trust him while they sleep than they can perform with anxious labor for themselves while awake. Can you think of a better reason not to rise up early and go to bed late only to eat the bread of anxious toil? As Victor Hugo, a 19th century writer, once said, when you have accomplished your daily task, go to sleep in peace. God is awake. One commentator posed the question this way, how many millions sleep and then wake up like atheists? That is, I believe he's asking the question this way, do we go to bed and wake up in our worries as if God does not exist? Do we think that we can worry ourselves to security, worry ourselves to restful lives, or do we work and then trust God to establish the work of our hands? Do you sleep like an atheist, or do you trust in the Lord? Man, what great questions to ask ourselves. And so perhaps you're wondering, well, man, how, how can I really express this to God, my trust in Him, before I go to bed? Here's, here's a simple prayer to help you express your trust to the Lord. It's, you go to sleep at night. You could say something like this. Dear Lord, as this day ends, I am glad to be able to rest in you. I believe that you are with me and that you hear my prayer. May the good things that happened today be planted deeply in the memory of my heart and shape me into a better person. Help me to learn from my mistakes and forgive me of my sins. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of a new beginning tomorrow. Now allow me to rest in you and you alone and to awake refreshed in the goodness of your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Try it and see what the Lord will do for you. 
So the first thing we learn here in the psalm is that without the Lord, our work is pointless. The second thing we learn is that without the Lord, our lives are restless. And the third thing we learn in this psalm is that without the Lord, our homes are fruitless. You come to verses 3 and 5 in the psalm, and it's really all about children or home life, family life, parenting, and all about children and what a blessing they are. Solomon writes, starting in verse 3, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And then he begins to describe what these children are like. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them, although some of you may be questioning that. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Now this is amazing. We don't have time to go into all the details of what Solomon's saying in these three verses here. So let me just kind of give you the big picture. But what he is saying is, is amazing. Because way before health care was a national crisis and a political issue of debate, God's original universal health care and elder care plan was children. Why? So that when we get old, when we get decrepit, there's some young people around that like us and care about us enough to take care of us. And Solomon is celebrating that fact when he says, children are a heritage, and that word heritage can be translated gift. But notice who they're a gift from, the Lord. By the way, let me just add this, because perhaps some of you may be wondering, this is not a mandate to have the largest family you possibly can either. Yes, children are a blessing, Solomon even says, a quiver full of them has great benefits. But if you think this is a condemnation of small families, or if you think, listen, childlessness is a sign of somehow God's disfavor on that couple who wants children and yet can't have children, man, you're missing the whole point of what Solomon's telling us here. Basically, Solomon is using children as an illustration of the first three verses or the first two verses that he wrote. And that is this, that children are a gift from God, not the result of our work. Children are a gift from the Lord, not the result of our work. Everything that's truly good in life comes to us by grace from God. The truly good things in life are blessings to be grateful for. They're not accomplishments that we take credit for. And the best example of this blessing, of this gift, are children. Of all the tangible blessings in this life, children are by far the most rewarding gifts God gives. The gift of children are born. When you think about this with me, they're not born through human effort, but through the miraculous process of reproduction which God created back in Genesis 1. I mean, think about it. What do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. The entire miracle, yes, I understand, it requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we call work. You can't build a baby. You cannot build a child by any amount of work or careful design, even if you gave your entire life to the project. Listen, the story of Pinocchio is still pure fiction. We simply, we participate 
in an act of love that was provided for us by God in his grand design at creation. And in that regard, children now serve as an illustration of every blessing we enjoy in this life. Now, I know some of you are perhaps thinking to yourself, and you're sitting there, because you're like, man, maybe your family is more cursed than blessed. Your home more resembles the Simpsons or modern family. Well, let me remind you that the way God gives this gift of children doesn't always look like the perfect family. Because there are no perfect families. Listen to me. Because of sin, again, we go back to Genesis with Adam and Eve, every family is messed up. Every family struggles to overcome its dysfunction. Just think how God gave this gift of children. Let's go back to Genesis 11. We could go to several examples, but let's just go there since we were already there. Genesis chapter 11, remember the passage of the Tower of Babel? These same people who disobeyed God tried to make a name for themselves by building the tower to the heavens, and then God frustrates their plans by confusing their language and scattering them over the old earth. So what now is going to be God's counter plan of blessing to that? What God picks, this is amazing. Hold it, grab your, grab your seatbelts, buckle up. This is amazing. God picks this pagan idolater named Turan, or Terra, from Iraq, no less. Modern-day Iraq, which is where Ur of the Chaldees is. And God basically says to this man, Terra, I'm going to give you a boy, and his name is going to be Abram. Later changed to Abraham. And Abraham will wait to have a child by his own wife until they are both very, very old, way past the age of having children. But through that boy, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, there's no telling the family conflicts and tensions that must have existed between Abraham and Sarah for much of their marriage. We get a little glimpse of that as we continue reading Genesis chapter 12 through the rest of the book there, especially after God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, oh, by the way, Abraham, I want you to pack up your wife, your family, and all your belongings, and I want you to head out. Just go. Where, God? I'll show you where. Wives, can you imagine that conversation with your husband? If you had been a fly on the wall of their tent, you would have said, man, this home is a mess. The dysfunction is all over the place, and yet it was all part of God's miraculous, redemptive plan for humanity. And God worked his plan in spite of their dysfunction, in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their lack of trust in God. Listen, if God can work his plan in Abraham and Sarah's home, let me tell you, he can certainly work his plan in your home. I love what one commentator writes. It is not untypical of God's gifts that they first are liabilities, or at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons and daughters will be a handful before they're a quiver full. Does that encourage you, dads? Moms? Your kids will be a handful before they become a quiverful. In other words, testing and trials will come before blessing and reward. That's how our God works. And so if you have a messed up family today, 
But you trust in the Lord. You commit your life to the Lord. You commit your sons and your daughters, your family to the Lord. God will work His purpose out, and in the end, He will vindicate Himself to you. And you will say, like Job in the Old Testament, I have heard of you, but now I see you, and I know that you are good. Now, before we end, there's a warning in this psalm. And I want you to see it. Solomon wrote this psalm, and in this psalm, Solomon tells us that we shouldn't build without trusting the Lord, and we shouldn't protect without trusting the Lord. We shouldn't rear children without trusting the Lord. Well, sadly enough, like much of Solomon's wisdom, the lessons of this psalm that he wrote himself were lost on him. That is, Solomon failed to apply a lot of what he wrote in his own life and he paid the consequences. His building as a king became reckless. His kingdom became a disastrous ruin. And we know from other places in the Bible that his home life, his family life was one big disaster as he abandoned God's plan in his marriage and family. Is that now not a warning for us here today? Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived on the face of the earth, made a wreck of his life because he didn't listen to his own counsel that he wrote. What a reminder now for us that you're only as good as your next decision. Now, oddly enough, though, there is some good news that comes bursting out of this particular psalm here, out of his life even. Notice this. It's the good news from Solomon's life. And that is when we trust the Lord in all matters of life, we will experience satisfaction instead of frustration. Trusting the Lord, get this, is the difference between satisfaction in life and frustration in life. So in his kindness, God has let Solomon tell us to trust the Lord now in your work. Trust the Lord in your life. Trust the Lord in your home. He even writes it for us in Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6, where he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Stop right there because that's the tension. Listen, focus. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But that and... That is the dividing line. That is the tension line that we struggle with in life, is to trust the Lord with everything about us and not lean on our own understanding of how life works, but rather to trust in the Lord in everything about life, in particular, in the context of this psalm, work and family. And I'm telling you, you listen to the culture of our world when it comes to work and family, you will be leaning on your own understanding. And then he goes on and he tells us, in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. But even out of this, there's even more good news, and it has everything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because think about this with me. If the work you do in building a home and guarding a city is in vain without the Lord's blessing, then how much more are our efforts in vain to earn God's favor by good works? You can't be successful in any endeavor 
if you're trusting in your own work. That's the lesson of this psalm. So how much less can you earn God's favor by trusting in your own goodness? The Bible says we're all sinners, and all our works are corrupt and worthless by the very nature of who we are. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus came, by the way, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so if you're not trusting Christ for your salvation, then all your religion is in vain. All your works are futile, but Christ's works are perfect. He is the sinless Lamb of God who not only paid the price for our sins and fulfilled all the demands of righteousness. Listen, in other words, His work is not in vain. And for those now, who are willing to bow to Him as their Lord, for those who are willing to trust Him as their Savior, His death counts as payment for your sins, and His righteousness counts as your righteousness. That's the good news of the Gospel. And so I end with this. Embrace it. Wrap your heart around it, that Jesus has already done the work for you. Believe it and put your trust in it and you will enjoy lasting satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, we ask for your spirit to work among us and to take your word and to plant it deep within our hearts. Lord, help us to ponder the message of this psalm as it relates to our own work, to our own lives, and our own homes. And Lord, for those of us who have yet to trust you for our salvation, may you draw us to yourself and give us the faith to believe in you. Let us bring these things to you now as Zach sings. In your name we pray. Amen.